this morning in, uh, in the teaching, and tell you what, Tim, we can kill the fluorescent lights if you feel like it. Um, I'm glad you're here. Some of you are here and you know what you're getting into because uh, we're in a series, and uh, we've been, uh, we're in part four, and some of you have been here for some or all of these, and you keep coming back, which is really cool, and, and some of you are just he- happened to stumble in. I had no idea uh, what we we're going to be talking about today, and I'm glad you're here too. Um, We've been doing this series that we've been in for a few weeks that we're calling Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. And if you're like me, you've had some big, hairy, audacious questions about the Christian faith at some point in your journey. Um, And and I hope you've had the questions. I hope you've asked the questions. I hope you've found some answers that maybe just led you to some more questions. That's, That's awesome. Sometimes just about the time that you get one of your big questions answered, another one comes right along, you know, behind it, take its place. That's okay. If you're a skeptical person, or even if you would say you're at the very least a little skeptical about a few things about the Christian faith, we've been uh, hoping you would show up each week as we talk about these things and try to be as honest as we can about uh, these questions. Or if you found yourself in conversations, or maybe you go looking for conversations uh, with friends and family members and coworkers who are skeptics, who maybe have all kinds of really big questions that have kept them at arm's length, arm's length from Christianity and from uh, a relationship with God, and you want to be better equipped to engage them, then I'm really glad you're here. Hopefully, uh, this is helpful for you. So just a little history here. A few weeks ago, we put out an email, and I posted it on Facebook, and we put it on our, our website. We asked you to uh, send us your biggest, uh, most difficult questions about the Christian faith, and we wanted to hear the questions that you're hearing from your skeptical friends and unbelieving unchurched friends, and, your, uh, and then some of the questions that you've had yourself. Maybe you've had them answered, but you know that it's still a big question for for some people, or maybe it's just the one that's just kind of got you stuck. These are not softball questions. Um, you, you responded with some really great questions. Um, these are some of the big ones and uh, the most difficult questions that uh, I think that we can wrestle with as followers of Jesus. So we've taken these questions that you submitted. We kind of put them into some categories, and we put together the series, Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. And so far, we've talked about, number one, we talked about, can I really trust the Bible? We felt that was where we really needed to start. Uh, Then we asked, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Uh, Which is a great question. And uh, question three, last time we asked, how can a loving God send people to hell? And we answered all your questions you could possibly ever have about that and uh, settled that once. No, we just explored it a little bit. All those are available on CD. I think they're all available on the table back there. They're online on our website, and they're on our podcast. So check those out, and you can kind of get caught up. Today, we're going to address this question. These are all questions you submitted. Can we know the will of God for our lives? And if so, how? I think we would all agree that to some degree, our lives are the sum total of our decisions, right? To some degree. Decisions about family, decisions about who we marry, uh, decisions about, you know, do we have kids? How many kids? When do we have kids? Where to work? Should we take that job there? Should we move that uh, across town into that job? Or should I move to southern Maine or out of state? Should we stay here? Should we move away from our family? Should I accept that invitation? Should I accept that job offer? And on and on, the, the sum total of our decisions. And basically, as you look back on your life, as much as we're, you know, psychologically savvy people, there's something inside of us that would like to blame someone. We'd like to blame our parents. They're the the ones we blame first. So we'd like to blame our parents first for um, everything. 
And, you know, if only I hadn't been born into that kind of family, if only I hadn't been born in that environment, if I'd only been born into a family that wasn't so dysfunctional as my, you know, oh my, I didn't have a chance. I wouldn't have so much baggage. If only my dad hadn't, if only my mom would have, and on and on and on we go. The truth is, we are the ones who have made the decisions. We are the ones who have taken the hand we've been dealt and made decisions based on that. And consequently, where we are today has determined, has been determined by the decisions we have made. And we don't like to admit that. We'd rather shift some blame. But because of that, most of us in this room have some regrets. There are some things, some decisions that we wish we had made differently at some point in the past. Some of us have entire chapters of our lives that we wish we could just rip out don't we? So that when people get to know us well enough and they come to discover that part of our lives and they ask, well, what happened there? You know, you could just go, I'll never tell. You know, it's just, uh, I just got rid of that whole era. I don't even remember anymore. It never happened. You'll never know. Some of you come to this church and and if I were to give you a, a microphone and ask you to tell your story, your story would sound something like, well, I made a lot of bad decisions and I had this era of my life and I'm hoping that, you know, I, I, I know I made a lot of bad decisions, and I'm hoping that somehow, some way, that there's a God out there that will just keep me from making any more dumb decisions from this point out. So I'm here, and my primary goal in coming to church is not to be dumb anymore. It's not to make dumb decisions anymore. I don't want to make any more dumb decisions. I've made enough for a lifetime, and if there's any chance that in this book, in the Bible, or if through God, or through the people in church, if somehow it will just help me you know, put up some guardrails in my life so I don't continue to veer off course, that's why I'm here. And I know for some of you, that's your story. The great news is this. Your Heavenly Father is exactly that. He's a heavenly father. And like any good father, he wants to guide and he wants to direct our lives. And for a lot of us, that's why we come here Sunday after Sunday. It's why we get together with friends and open up God's word together in our small group environments. But there's always this challenge of, how do I know if it's God? How do I know if it's God speaking to me or if it's something I ate the night before? You know what I'm talking about? How do I know if it's God speaking to me? I mean, I'm looking through the Bible and reading about, you know, Judas went and hung himself. And so I'm like, is that God's word to me? Is that instructive? I don't. How do I know? How can we know for sure that we're hearing from God? When we talk about the will of God, let me just give you a little bit of background. There are three things we need to understand when we talk about the will of God. The Bible uses the phrase the will of God in three ways. Number one is the providential will of God. Number two is the moral will of God, and number three is the personal will of God. So we have providential, moral, and personal. If you've ever been a, a, a little confused about the whole will of God thing, how many of you have ever had a moment, at least, a moment where you've been a little confused about God's will for your life? Anybody ever? Okay, good. I've done some serious mental gymnastics in, in the last few years on this one. And I've come across some teaching on the will of God and the human free will and God's plan for mankind. And I've seen some significant inconsistencies, if not contradictions, or at least some gaps and some teaching that, you know, we tend to hear. And, but if you were to go to your uh, Bible app or do, and do a word search, or if you still use a concordance and did a word search, and you look up the will of God, in every place it shows up in the Bible, in every instance of Scripture, it's going to fall under one of these three categories. 
So let me explain uh, best I can. The providential will of God are those things that God's going to do no matter what. Okay, there are just some things that God's going to do because he's God, and he's just going to do them, and he doesn't even have to explain himself. The important thing about the providential will of God is that he accomplishes it through men and women, through people, through humans. And as believers, the more familiar we become with what God is up to now and with what God is going to do anyway in his providential will, the easier it becomes for us to identify his will for our lives. And uh, I know that just probably generated a lot more questions. But that's the providential will of God. Then there's the moral will of God. The moral will of God is those things that God has given us as commands, what God wants all of us to do, the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. I mean, there are just some things as Christians, as we know the Scripture, there are just some things that we don't have to pray about because they are commands of Scripture. So consequently, the more familiar you are with the moral will of God, the easier it is to discern the third part, which is the one that we're most interested in, the personal will of God. The personal will of God is, should I marry her or should I wait? Should I take this job or should I stay in this job? It's those kinds of personal decisions that all of us need to make. And the good news is, God is very interested in those kinds of decisions. The more familiar you become with the providential will of God, what God's going to do anyway, and the more obedient you become to the moral will of God, the things that God wants all of us to do, the easier it will be for you to discover the personal will of God. Did you catch that? I'm just going to repeat that, okay? The more familiar you become with the providential will of God, what God's going to do anyway, and the more obedient you become to the moral will of God, the things God wants you to do, then the clearer and the easier it is for you to understand and discover the personal will of God for your life. As you study God's word, oh, there's a key. As you study God's word, the more familiar you become with the providential will of God, the things that maybe God wants you to be involved in that he's going to do anyway, and the more obedient and the more surrendered you become to the moral will of God, the things we already know that we're supposed to do, those standards that God has established for our families and for our relationships and for our interactions with one another and for our private lives and for our thoughts and for our attitudes and our actions then the easier it's going to be for you to determine and understand the personal will of God. I brought a little visual aid. How many of you, uh, how many of you know what, let me just kind of, how many of you know what this is? Yeah, don't say it out loud, just let me know if you know what this is. That's right, this is, uh, this is a ninja weapon, exactly. So as I know, how many of you know what this is? String, string exactly, it's string. Also known as the plum line. Right, so this is the plum bob, right? Plum bob and a plum line. Have you ever used one of these? I'd like to ask you what you used it for, but uh, I, Dan, you're not going to believe this. I've actually used one of these and for, its proper, for its proper application. Uh, so do you know what builders use this for? They use this to determine what everything else around it should do. This is, this is plumb. Everything is built according to that. Masons use this, and uh, it's amazing. I, I love watching craftsmen anyway, but they actually run a horizontal plumb line, which blows my mind. Because um, I'm just like, yeah, that looks good. Nail it. Um, and they lay each level of brick according to the plumb line. 
Here's what I want you to understand. That God's providential will, what he's going to do anyway, and God's moral will, the things he's commanded us to do, determine the plumb line for everything else God is going to call you and ask you to do. Everything God is going to lead you to do revolves around the plumb line of his providential and moral will. What he's calling you to do personally never contradicts the plumb line. This sets the standard. It sets the course. It sets the pattern for what God is going to call you and lead you to do. Therefore, the more familiar you... This is our plumb line, by the way. The more familiar you are with this, the more obedient you are to this, the easier it is for you to determine the undecided and unknown things in your life, the things that keep you up at night. The more familiar you become with the providential will of God and the more obedient we are to the moral will of God, it sounds like a broken record, I know, but I'm trying to make a point, the easier it's going to be to determine the personal will of God for your life. And I've had, I can't tell you many people, I've had conversations with who are struggling to find God's personal will for their lives, and they haven't given any consideration to getting to know what is God's providential will, and what are his moral, what's his moral will, what are his standards that he's already laid out in Scripture. You will never get to the personal will of God until you've established providential and moral. There's a lot we can say about today about the will of God, and we may come back at some time and get into this a little more in depth. Each of these, each of these questions in this big, hairy, audacious question series, uh, we aren't able to go as far as we want to go in the time that we have. So maybe we'll come back to this one sometime in the next few months. But for the purpose of this series today, we're going to uh, kind of fast track this, and we're going to talk about how do you discover God's will when you need to know now? So if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. If you have your Bible or your uh, Bible app or whatever, we're going to put it on the screen too. Because in 1 Kings 12, we find illustrated for us a principle that is so obvious that you wonder why we've got to spend 40 minutes talking about it today. But at some point, it's a principle that is so important, there's a tendency oftentimes to overlook it, and there's a tendency not to leverage this principle for our benefit. The good news is, as we look at this together, that God wants us to know His will. God wants us to know His will even more than we want to know it. And so he's given us a very clear and very specific and a very practical way of discerning his will for our lives. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we read the story of the would-be king who stumbled onto this principle and then he violated it. He knew it, ignored it, and violated it. And he paid a price. Let me give you a little background. This is an awesome story. If you don't spend some time reading the history uh, in the, uh, and reading the story of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, you're missing out on some really good readings. This is pretty awesome. The first king of Israel was a man named, what was his name, first king of Israel? Saul, right. He didn't do well as king, and so God replaced him before long with David, right? David did really well. Not perfect, but really well. And then David's son followed him as king of Israel, and his name was? Solomon, right. Solomon did really well at the beginning of his reign, but eventually he turned his heart away from God, and his heart went after his foreign wives and their gods. And, and, and God said to Solomon, Solomon, you've disappointed me greatly. You had so much more potential than this, and consequently, I'm going to tear away part of the kingdom from you and from your family. But because I made your father David a promise, I'm going to allow part of the kingdom to remain under his name and in his lineage, but I'm going to tear the majority of the kingdom away because you disobeyed me and you dishonored me as king. Oh, but Solomon, but I'm going to wait until you're gone before I do any of this. Again, just in honor of your father David. So God made this prophecy to Solomon that after he died, the kingdom of Israel would be divided. 
And God had sent a prophet to a man named Jeroboam. And he made the same prophecy to Jeroboam. And he said, Solomon's kingdom is going to be divided, and I'm going to give you a large portion of it, and you and your followers will rule over more than half uh, the nation of Israel. So King Solomon finds out about this prophecy. He's not very happy about it. He's not very happy with Jeroboam. So he chases Jeroboam down and was going to kill him because he didn't want anybody outside of his family to come along after he was dead and steal the legacy of the kingdom from his son and from his, his line. And Jeroboam catches wind of this, and he takes off and heads off to Egypt to escape. Time goes by, more time goes by, and finally Solomon dies. And everyone assumed that his son, Rehoboam, I know, confusing, his name had to be Rehoboam. So you got Jeroboam and Rehoboam, okay? Anyway, everyone assumed that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, not to be confused with Jeroboam, would become the king of Israel. In fact, everybody not only assumed that Rehoboam would become king, but they also assumed that he'd be uh, the best choice to be king. So this is where the story picks up in 1 Kings chapter 12. The nation has sent representatives to crown Rehoboam, Solomon's son, as the king of Israel. And just before they do, they make one simple request, and that sets us up for the principle we're going to talk about today. So 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. I'll start to read. You can follow along. Verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. I don't know how he heard it. I don't know how news traveled. I don't know how quickly that happened or how long that took. But it said he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, you see, get the picture. They're about to crown him king, and Jeroboam, who has escaped to Egypt, has now come back, and he's with the people who are approaching Rehoboam before they make him king. This is what they say, verse 4. They said, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us, and we will serve you. The word serve is very key to this whole passage of Scripture. They said, look, if you'll lighten up, if you'll do a better job in leading us and lighten up, your father was so harsh. I mean, there were high taxes. There was forced labor. It was just one building project after another. Your father wore us out. We want you to be king, but would you do us a favor? If we make you king, would you promise to lighten the load? Can we go a few years without a major building project? Can we go a few years with a lighter tax burden? Your father nearly destroyed us. So now here's Rehoboam at a defining moment in his life where the people have said, we want you to be king, but we want you to be a different kind of king than your father, and he has a decision to make. Now, from our vantage point, and in our culture, we read that, and we think, well, that's, that's easy. Just say, yeah, I'll lighten up. I'll be a good king. And then you become king and do whatever you want, because that's kind of how it works in our political process. But there was a lot at stake here for Rehoboam. So to say, yes, I'll lighten the load, I'll be a more merciful king, may have communicated to them that he was going to be a weak king. And if he were to give in to this request, I mean, who knows? Maybe next week they'll come back with another request and then another request. And he may have been held hostage to their requests. And at the same time, he knew that his father had been a taskmaster. I mean, his father had been very hard on the people. So there may have been something in him that wanted to grant their request, but there may have been something in him that wanted to to prove a point, that I'm the king, I get to decide how things operate here, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and I might end up being just like my father. So it's a very, very difficult environment. And he's a young man, he didn't have skill, he didn't have the wisdom of his father, so here he is facing these representatives of the whole nation, and he's got a decision to make. So he does a very, very smart thing. He asks for a little bit of time. Look what he says, verse 5. Rehoboam answered, go away... (laughs) 
I love that. Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. And he did the thing that all of us need to learn to do when we've got to make a decision. And we've got to make it now, you know. And there's so much at stake and there's so much emotion and there's so much pressure that we can't see clearly. Rehoboam asked for some time and he went to some outsiders for consultation. He asked for the input and the insight of wiser, older people. And God spoke through these men. Look what happened in verse 6. And King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. He said, how would you advise me to answer these people? So he goes to the older men in the kingdom who had the advantage of having watched his father rule. They saw the the successes, and they also saw the mistakes that he had made, and they saw the consequences of those mistakes, and they saw the rewards of some of those decisions, and they had unbelievable perspective, and he acknowledged that. He realized that, and they were older than Rehoboam, so they had more experience, and he goes to them, and he says, what should I do? You know the situation. What should I do? That was quite possibly the best decision that he could have made. Their reply is in verse 7. They replied, If you today will be a servant to these people and serve them, there's that word again, and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Basically, in a nutshell, they gave him very, very godly and wise counsel. They said, If you, Rehoboam, if you will learn to position yourself as the servant of the people, they will in turn always serve you. And if Rehoboam had taken that advice would have been a completely different story, not only for him, but for the entire nation of Israel. But this is where he departed from good judgment. Look what he does, verse 8. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. In other words, this is a group of people who had a lot at stake in terms of what happened to Rehoboam. As Rehoboam went, so went this group of people. He asked them, verse 9. He asked them, he says, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? In verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who've said, who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on you, on us, but make, your, make our yoke lighter. Tell them, this is kind of a funny expression, tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist, which is a figure of speech, a way of saying, if you think my father was bad, you wait till I'm in charge. He says, I'll make it even heavier my father, uh, my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. <laughs> Verse 12. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. And he followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. This turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam. This last part is so incredible and so complicated that I can't really explain it very well. I'm going to take a shot at it. Here we have this remarkable picture of the providential will of God intersecting with a decision made by an individual. There, there, you might think there's a sense in which you know, Rehoboam was kind of set up for failure. Because it said this turn of events was from the Lord. But here's the deal. God fulfilled his providential will through the free choice of Rehoboam. On one hand, it's an awesome example of how the two blend together. And it's a reminder to all of us that there are some things that God is going to do. And one of the wisest things we can learn to do is to cooperate 
with the providential will of God. But the greater point, I think, the greater principle that presents itself in this story is the value of going to older people for counsel and advice. One of the primary tools that God has given, uh, is, is going to use in your life and is going to use in my life to guide us is the counsel of other people. Here, here's why, and you can identify with this. A lot of times we are in a position where we have to make a decision about things that are so close to us that we cannot be objective. Oftentimes we are in a position where we have to make decisions about relationships and there's always emotion. And emotion has a tendency to cloud our ability to reason and to cloud our decision-making abilities. If you've ever been in love, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, love is like a fog. It's a wonderful fog, but it can make you silly and crazy and stupid, and sometimes bad decisions are made when we're in love. And if you've ever had to make decisions that dealt with family members, you know how complex it can be and how difficult it is to be objective. So a lot of times we have to make decisions about things that are just over our head in terms of our uh, information or our experience. Maybe you've been in business, and when you were new in business, all of a sudden you had to make a business decision, and that's way over your head. You've never faced this before. Or maybe you're just not good at finances, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where you've got to make a financial decision, and you're in way over your head. And even with all the wisdom that you have, all the research that you've done, you are unable to make a good decision because you just don't know what you need to know in order to know that you're making the right decision. So oftentimes... There are decision-making environments that are so complex, that are so filled with emotion, that are so over our heads that just getting along with God's Word and praying hard and trying to be quiet, we're just not going to get there because of the nature of that particular decision-making environment. So what God has done is He's made it simpler. I'm not going to say simple, but He's made it simpler, easier. He's given you me, and He's given me you. He's given us one another. And just as no member of your physical body operates independently in the body of Christ, we have not been left to make decisions independently and in isolation. God has given us one another. He's given us the body of Christ in order to facilitate wise decision-making process. If you'll listen carefully for just a few minutes, I'm going to give you some guidelines and we'll create this category. Um, If you'll work with me to kind of create this category in your thinking, uh, where you're willing to say, God, I believe that you are willing to speak to me through other people, um, I believe you can speak godly wisdom into my life through the wisdom of believers that you have placed in my life. If we'll at least kind of create that place in our thinking and then learn how to leverage it, I I think you'll be unbelievably amazed and maybe even shocked at how clearly God is willing to speak to you. Again, I'm not talking about an audible voice. If you've heard an audible voice, that's cool, but I'm not saying that that's how it's going to happen. I'm not talking about a magic catch-all verse of Scripture that's going to shine light on all those difficult decisions. I'm not talking about the first thought that pops into your head when you finally get all quiet and mellow. I'm not talking about dreams or visions or whatever like that, you know. Um, You know, you're driving down High Street and the license plate in front of you has four letters and somehow it represents whatever answer you're looking for. I'm not talking about that. You know. You get all distracted because could that be God speaking? I don't know. God wants you to know his will. And he's willing to make it clear. And one of the primary avenues he's going to use to speak to you is through people, through the people that he's put in your life. And what's interesting is that the writer who says more about this than anyone else is also, the, in all the scripture, was Rehoboam's father, Solomon. 
Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He, he was a man who maybe we think didn't need much counsel. He didn't need much advice. People came to him for advice, but he could just go on his own intuition and get it right most of the time. But I want to look just real quickly at a series of verses where the wisest man in the world, uh, and this, this is probably where Rehoboam learned to go for consultation, where the wisest man in the world says, in order to make the right decisions, in order to hear from God, you need to bring others into your world. I'm just going to read these verses. We're going to show the reference. I'm going to read the verse. Okay, so Proverbs 9, 9, he says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will, still, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. 19, 20 says, Listen to counsel and accept discipline, that you may be wise the rest of your lives. The rest of your life. 20, 18 says, Prepare plans by consultation. Make war by wise guidance. 24.6, for by wise guidance you'll wage war in an abundance of counselors. There's victory. 15.22 says, without consultations, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. I think that's incredible. The wisest man in the world says, if you want to make the right decisions, you've got to invite other people in on the decision-making process. Let me just tell you why I want to take my whole time this morning talking about this simple, pro- this simple principle uh, as it relates to a very kind of complex question. Because where I live as a pastor, and through the years growing up in a pastor's home, and in the past as a youth pastor, and seeing all kinds of situations, and all kinds of dilemmas, and uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, family, and marriage, and divorce, and remarriage, and financial, and job, and college, and all kinds of situations, there have been dozens of times when I've heard someone tell their story um, about the mess their life has become, or the dilemma that they're facing, or the problems they're dealing with now, and over and over, and as sensitively as I know how, I've asked this question, did you ask anybody about this beforehand? Like, before you signed the deal, did you run this by anybody? Before you got involved and you married him, did, did you talk to anybody else? Did you get any counsel? Before you made this decision that end, that where you ended up with, in, in such a complicated circumstance, did you invite anybody else in on the process? And 95% of the time, the answer is like, well, No. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, someone with an average IQ and a little bit of objectivity would have seen that situation and said, bad decision, don't do it. But I asked Christians that, and, and, and they're like, no, I didn't really run it by anyone because I prayed about it. Okay. I'm all in favor of prayer. Okay? I'm a big fan of prayer. Prayer is good. Okay? But God has given us something that's even more practical when it comes to getting good, sound direction. He's given us one another. And I bet 95% of the situations that people talk with me about, if they'd invited wise counsel in on the process before the decision was made, they would have avoided the mess completely. And a lot of times there are people who sincerely wanted to do the right thing, and now they're frustrated, and now they're mad at God. You know, God, why didn't you speak to me? Why didn't you show me? And why didn't you stop me? And I think God's going because you wouldn't leverage this principle. You wouldn't humble yourself and listen because you thought, if I can just get alone, if I can just read some Bible verses, if I can just pray and feel good about my decision because it's going to make me happy and get real quiet, then that's all there is to it. The truth is, God is willing and eager to speak to us and to reveal His personal will for our lives, but one of the primary tools He's going to use is other people. 
flip side of that is that in my experience, I have seen so many occasions where people will come talk to me or tell me about talking with someone else and they've got a dilemma and they really want to do the right thing, but they don't know what the right thing is. And they'll begin talking with me or with another Christian friend or something is said and it's like, you know, the lights go on. It's like, boom, I see it. And all of a sudden there's clarity. God will oftentimes use the wise people he's put around you. And he'll speak directly through them. And I'm so adamant about this because over the years I have learned personally that so many times, especially in big decisions, in those big decisions where there's a lot of emotion and those big decisions where uh, I have an agenda, in those big decisions where nothing's neutral, in those big decisions where how do I know if it's God or if it's what I want, I've learned that I am far better off running even the medium-sized decisions through the counsel of wise people. And I can't tell you the number of times I've been in conversations with people and it's just like, oh, okay, I hadn't seen it that way. I hadn't seen that possible result. I hadn't seen all the ramifications. I've become so dependent on the counsel of other people who are smarter and wiser than me because I believe that one of the primary ways that God speaks to me is through other people. And again, I, I, this isn't like something freaky. I don't sit down and I'm like, let's sit down so God can speak to you through, speak to me through you, and let's pray about that. It's not a formal deal. It's just developing a sensitive ear to learn to listen carefully. If we'll learn to listen strategically, you'll, I think you'll be amazed at how quickly and how easily and how clearly you can understand God's will for your life. I know a lot of us have been in situations where we've gone to someone for counsel and gotten bad advice. The story of Rehoboam, he got some good advice, then he got some bad advice, and at the end of the story, the kingdom is divided. So we need to learn to listen carefully, but we need to learn to establish some boundaries, some parameters about who we listen to and how we listen and what we do with what we've heard. So I want to give you a couple suggestions about how to leverage this principle of hearing from God through other people, and that's where I want to kind of go as we wrap up. This is about choosing the right people, okay? Number one, you need to choose someone who has nothing to lose by telling you the truth. That's a tough one. You have to be really selective. When it comes to hearing from God through other people, you need to listen to people who have nothing to lose by telling you the truth. The problem with Rehoboam and his, his young friends is that his young friends had a lot to lose. All, all of us in this room have had some of those friends at times. Because you might have friends, listen, who are more concerned about the friendship than they are about you as a person. You have friends, and I do too, who are more concerned about the friendship and preserving the relationship. In other words, they're just going to tell us whatever they need to tell us to make sure nothing happens to the relationship. That's their priority over telling you what you really need, the truth that you really need to hear. So you need to find someone who has nothing to lose by telling you the truth. And secondly, you need to choose someone who is where you want to be in life. And that's a whole message. I don't want to go too far down this road, but you need to choose someone who is where you want to be in life. You need to find people who are where you want. And that doesn't mean that you're going to find someone who is like where you want to be in every area of life. It might be different categories kind of as you relate to them, but you need to find people who are where you want to be and in a sense have a map as to how to get there. Because basically what you're saying is, I want to be where you are in your marriage. And you might be saying to somebody else, I want to be where you are financially, or I want to be where you are in your relationships, or I want to be where you are spiritually. And I don't, I'm not where you are, but I'm trying to make a decision. And ultimately, as a result of these kinds of decisions, 10 or 15 years down the road, I'd like to be where you are. Would you show your map? Would you share your map with me? Can I get a glimpse into your map? 
Because obviously you know how to get there. You're there. We really don't have any business asking advice from people who really aren't any further down the road than we are. I mean, they're peers. And you can share and talk and pray and socialize and talk about things. That's great. And kind of hammer things out together. But when it comes to, God, I want you to speak to me, we've got to be really, really careful. Chances are the bad advice that you've gotten, even from professional counselors, came from men and women who may have been a little older and may have been a little more educated, but in terms of being where you want to be, we're no closer than you are. See, what Rehoboam did right in this story is he went to the men who had been there and done that and said, hey, having watched the king operate for 40 years, what do you think I ought to do? And they said, we've got some context for that decision. But his friends had no more context than he did. And besides that, they were clearly more interested in the relationship than they were in what happened to Rehoboam. So we need to find people who are where we want to be and you need to ask to borrow their mat. It's saying, look, in this area of your family, or our kids, our schedule, our job, our finances, our relationships, our ministry, we, we don't want to copy you, but we want to get to that destination. Uh, would you just share a corner of your map with, with us? We, I, I, I tell you, the insight you will pick up in those kinds of uh, conversations is unbelievable. And you and I need to find people who are where we want to be and not simply struggling to get there along with us. That has a place, but we need more than that. Number three, you need to ask more than one person. So choose more than one person if you can. Make the effort to find a couple people that can give you some direction and insight into these particular areas uh, where you might need to make a decision. And then number four, you need to go into these conversations sensitive to the fact that God may speak to you. Be sensitive to the fact that God may... I wonder how many times God's uh, spoken to us and, and, and we're just unaware because we're not in that space. And I don't mean you front load it, you know, it's like, hey, yeah, no, we're meeting for lunch tomorrow. I've asked God to speak through you, so, you know, be prepared. Uh, that, the, you, you don't want to do that. Um, this isn't about control. It isn't about some kind of multi-level spiritual thing. We just, you know, have to go, you know, up line to get direction. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm just talking about the relationships that God has allowed us to develop for the context where we go in, and as we go in, we just say, God, you know I've got this decision. Please uh, just let me hear from you. It mean that, may mean that they suggest A, and A is so absurd that it causes you to think of C, and you do C. And that's what God wanted to show you. It may mean they suggest B, and that's it, and you just do B. But you go into these conversations saying, God, you want me to know. I want to know. Would you please use these conversations either to connect me with someone or give me confirmation that I'm headed in the right direction or clarity or whatever it might be. And then uh, here, there are three questions that we need to ask uh, that and you might want to write these down if you write, like to write things down. In the context of conversations, after you've given them your background and your sad story or whatever, you're just doing life together anyway, and then you said, these are the kinds of questions you need to ask. Number one, are any of the options I'm considering outside the boundaries of Scripture? As far as you know, as far as you understand God's word, are any of the options I'm considering outside the boundaries of Scripture? This is especially helpful if you're a brand new believer, or if you're not super familiar with the Bible, and uh, you're still thinking about it, and you're thinking, you know, I know you said there's a providential will of God, there's a moral will of God, I really don't know what either of those things are, and then ask this question. Are any of the options I'm considering outside the boundaries of Scripture? And this is really about making certain that we're operating within the moral will of God. 
Second question, uh, you're going to have to really narrow it down a little bit, is what do you think the wise thing is for me to do? So most of the time when it comes down to what's the right thing for me to do, if we're familiar enough with the providential and moral will of God as, as it's spelled out for us in Scripture, we're going to know what the right thing to do is. Those black and white decisions are a whole lot easier to make. It's those gray ones. It's the ones that fall somewhere in between. Well, what we need to know is what's the wise thing for me to do. So ask the question, what do you think is the wise thing for me to do? Um, that's what's frustrating to me about decision-making is that most of the time we deal, the issues we deal with are not right and wrong issues. They are... Uh, they're, they're not moral issues, you know. It's, it's do I stay in this job or do I take this job out of state? Do I stay in this relationship or should I leave it? Do, or do I continue this friendship or do I move on? Or It's those kinds of things. They aren't right and wrong kind of issues. So the wisdom decision focuses in based on what you know about me, based on my past experience, because you know me, based on what I hope to be in the future, because we've talked about that. What do you think is the wise thing for me to do? The scripture says that he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, and he who walks wisely will be delivered. And through wisdom, God delivers us from an awful lot of bad decisions. So we need to ask the question, based on what I've told you, based on what you know about me, what do you think is the wise thing for me to do? And then number three, this is kind of tricky, but sometimes we need to ask, what would you do if you were me? Based on what you've experienced in life, uh, you've been there, you've done that, you've accomplished this, you've failed here, you succeeded there. Based on what you know, if you were me, what would you do? I tell you what, if you will be selective in who you ask, and if you will ask strategic questions, you will be amazed. As some of you already have been, because some of you could tell your stories, because you know this principle works. Because you're sitting there nodding your heads thinking, oh yeah, I just, I, I totally agree. I've, I'm, I'm, I've learned that. But I kind of wish I had, I had learned this principle 30 years ago. That had been so much better. Or 10 years ago. But I tell you what, if we will lean into this, you'll be amazed at how many times God will use the body of Christ to give you guidance and um, direction. And, 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 and don't think that this is a less spiritual approach. Like, I'd rather just spend some time in the Word and meditating and prayer and God will show me. Sometimes God intends to show you through your interactions with other people. There are probably reasons why we don't do this. There are reasons why some of you won't do this. Maybe you're saying, well, that's a great talk because, you know, you got so many friends and you you know people and you're just all out there. But I don't really know anybody like that. Well, let's talk about that sometime. The primary reason why we don't do this is the same reason that men will drive around for hours completely lost before we ask for directions. Reason number one is pride. This is the reason why we won't do this. Because I should be able to figure this out. I don't need anybody else telling me what to do. Let let me just set you free, okay? Because spiritual maturity is not about making decisions on your own. If you make all your decisions on your own without the advice of others, it's not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's probably a sign of spiritual immaturity. We need to take advantage of every relationship and every opportunity that we have to leverage the wisdom of other people and to leverage the experience of other people. And this is God's way. And oftentimes he'll speak to us because of our willingness to get involved in that process. God has given us one another. 
God is willing to speak through the people that he's put around you if we'll leverage this principle and if we'll be careful about who we go to and if we'll ask the right questions because your Father in Heaven wants you to know his will even more than you want to know it. And if we'll learn to listen, he's more than willing to speak. I'm going to invite the band to come to the stage and um, we're, going to, we're going to sing the song that we've been singing every week with this series, Show Me Your Ways, and I think it really just is really appropriate for today. I've known a few people in my life who could um, point to an event almost as, almost as dramatic as, you know, Paul on the Damascus Road, a sudden blinding moment when everything became clear and God's call was as obvious as the color of their shirt. You know, I mean, I've, I know some people who can kind of point to that moment, but for most of us, God's will isn't always so clear. It would be easy while we're contemplating God's plan and trying to determine what it might be in a given situation. It would be easy to fall victim to what golfers call paralysis by analysis, you know, and some people peer into themselves with a microscope searching for God's will. I think that's the wrong approach. If you're having trouble figuring out what to do, trying to figure out God's will for your life, for your particular situation, just know this. God isn't the one who's hiding it from you. That's not, he doesn't play that game. However you choose to go about it, exercise patience and trust God as you carry out this search. Trying to grasp God's will for your life and all of its complexity is probably beyond the abilities of most of us. I don't think we'd get it. It'd be so overwhelming. But I do believe it's possible for most of us to hear God's voice to take the next step, to do the next wise thing, to do the next right thing. So maybe the most important step that you can take is the one that you need to take right now. Most of the time, there's going to be an element of the unknown in our journey. We have to be okay with that. If God is involved, there's always going to be an element, an element of, of mystery. So if, if you don't have God's will figured out, if you aren't sure about every detail of what he wants you to do with your life, you're in excellent company. Just do what God has placed in your heart to do. Do it the best you can. That, that, those things that bring honor to God's name and a smile to his face. Paul says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, and it's the Lord that you are serving. I hope this has been helpful. Let's stand together. We're going to sing, Show Me Your Ways.